And then there's a concept in positive psychology called broaden and build. And that is when you wake up in the morning and you're a caregiver, you can have this tape running through your head. Like I would wake up and there's a Paul Simon song where the lyric is, but I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm just weary to the bone. And one day I said to my husband, you know, I wake up with the song in my head. I'm just weary to the bone. And he said, yeah, but it's, but I'm all right. I'm all right. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Ms. Karen Warner Schuler. Karen is an executive coach, speaker, and author. And in today's episode, she shares with us practical and proven tips for caring for a loved one, especially when that role comes unexpectedly. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so, so much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, of course. So first of all, thank you so much for hosting me today. I am Karen Warner Schuler. I'm an executive coach and I'm the author of the book, The Sudden Caregiver, which is a roadmap for caregiving resilience. I have my own coaching firm and I've been doing that for 20 years, which it's the longest job I've ever had. And I love it so much. And I'm a newly remarried wife and a mom. And I'm Nan. I'm a grandmother to two little munchkin grandsons, four and two. Wonderful. Congratulations. Could you tell us how did you become a sudden caregiver? Well, back in 2014, my late husband, Joel, and I were on a great vacation. We, For the first time, we were carefree. The kids were launched and everyone was good and they had partners and jobs and We went to Rome where my husband was speaking, and then we just had the best vacation we had ever been able to have across all the years of our marriage, raising our kids. And within three months, he was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and it came totally out of the blue. There were no symptoms, and the day that he was diagnosed as a cancer patient, a terminal cancer patient, I became a sudden caregiver. Oh, wow. With no symptoms, how did they know something was wrong? So he was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, but he was not a smoker. He was, he was healthier than I was. It's so unfair and, you know, worked out six days a week and was really very careful about like his health and his, his diet So there was no shortness of breath or anything like that, but he did have a bad back and it started gradually in, in Rome in June. I can't remember him saying anything about his back, but by the end of the summer, it was kind of a constant complaint. And then finally it was getting to be every day we were talking about this. And so I said, why don't we just go MRI? We'll just go to the hospital because I've had a bad back and, and I, we found out through an MRI and he said, he said, okay, yeah, let's go. And I ran up to get dressed and I came back downstairs and he was already working and on the phone. And so we never did that MRI. And then I was traveling for my job as a coaching consultant. And he called me and he said, you know, I'm in a lot of pain. So I called a friend of ours till I could get home. And I said, would you just go help him? Like, and I was annoyed, like, come on, we, we should have gone to the hospital a while ago. And so he went and he ended up calling me at two o'clock in the morning and saying, uh, 
you know, I thought he was calling me to tell me he got home from the hospital because I was in Philadelphia and he was in Boston. And he said, I've, I have stage four cancer. And neither one of us in that moment could understand it. I immediately went to, that's not true. That's a mistake. I I just was, I'll grab the first flight out and I'll get back and I'll straighten all this out. But in fact, it was the case. So, so we were launched into a kind of crisis mode, but then he began his treatment and we were living in Boston at the time and began his treatment and he responded well to it. So we had a good stretch of time when we dealt with the pain and he was normal. What I call in my book, as normal as possible. I love the way you say that. I'll I'll straighten this all out. (laughs) I think it appeals to the fixer in all of us. You know, this can be resolved. Let's let's just solve it. Well, I, I've, you know, I was a single mom before I met my husband and I feel like I can solve, I've, I used to say I've never, never met a problem I can't solve and stage four cancer is a problem that I couldn't solve, but we, you know, we did what we could do to thread our way through it. And we both took the, the idea that this is not going to be terminal for him. He's going to be different. And we're going to find the best care. And, and we did everything possible. So now you're a sudden caregiver. And how did that change your life, if at all? Did you continue to work? Did you have to stay home? It's a good question because there are two prongs to it. I was able to continue to work. I was a consultant. I had my own company. So even though I had people working for me, they were contractors. So I wasn't responsible for payroll and that kind of thing. And my husband was a consultant and he had a couple of, he had, he's written 20 business books and he founded a couple of magazines. So he was just doing what he could do working from home. And if he had to travel, he'd do it. My job required always from the time I started my company, I was always on the plane going somewhere. To, I would usually go on site to visit with my clients. So that part of it changed. But we were really fortunate that we could continue. We weren't, I wasn't always interested in being the professional problem solver for everybody else's problems, but it was good for both of us to have that distraction. The other prong of it though, is I realized how lucky we were because we had that flexibility. And I have spoken to many, many caregivers, their income depends on them figuring out what to do for the person in their care and then, you know, getting in the car and going to work, working all day. My sister was caregiver for my late mom and, you know, would be not unusual for her to be at work and get the call. Your mom's got to go to the ER. My sister would leave work. So you have to negotiate. There's a part of my book that where I talk about that. You kind of have to negotiate your own situation with your job. How much do you share? How much do you keep to yourself? It's, For every caregiver, that's going to be an individual thing. Your book is called The Sudden Caregiver, A Roadmap for Resilient Caregiving. What do you mean by resilient caregiving? And why did you pick that term? Well, thank you for asking that because right before all of this happened, I went back to school to the University of Pennsylvania and got a master's degree in positive psychology. And University of Pennsylvania is the mothership for positive psychology. And resilience is, so for a year while I was in that program, I was immersed in how do you build resilience? How do you create a practice that gets you up out of 
things that are considered inevitable. And one of the things that happened when I became a caregiver, because I had that kind of scholarly approach, I had just gotten my degree, I started Googling like clinical papers on caregiving. And it was all bad. (laughs) Everything I found to read was well-founded, evidence-based, but basically saying, if you're a caregiver, your health is going to go down. You're going to, you, you are likely to have stroke before the person in your care. You're like likely in some studies to die before the person in your care, because what happens with caregivers is our health goes down. And yet that, and that, that's very well-founded research. Everything I just said exists and is true, but that wasn't my whole experience. Yes, it was harder. And yes, I had to kind of fight for my own well-being. We had you know, positive emotions. I'd get through a day and be really proud of the day that I had gone through and the love of the people that were reaching out to help me. And people really surprised me in, the, in how generous and giving they are. And so in, in positive psychology, there's this idea of if you have positive emotions and you're engaged and you've got good relationships and meaning and accomplishment spells the acronym PERMA, then you're likely to be in the presence of well-being. And I can tell you that was my experience. So I started talking to other caregivers. And what I realized was there's something in my book, I call it the caregiver paradox, because it is true that caregiving is all those things. It's hard on finances, on resources, on time, on energy. And it's also a source of well-being. It's also a place where you can look back on a day or a year or a week and go, wow, I didn't know I was capable of that. And and I just did something really good for this person in my care. So it's both. And that's the paradox of it. And that's why I thought, well, if we're just, if we're able to experience caregiving in that way, wouldn't it be great if we could purposefully purposefully build our own well-being. And so in my book, I created, I, I started by just writing the roadmap for caregiving because I felt like that was a helpful thing when I realized it. But then I realized before you can even get on the road and, and go on the journey, you need to really understand how to put resilience into your situation. So I created something called Pathways to Wellbeing. Pathways to Wellbeing and my roadmap are PDFs that can be downloaded from my caregiver website for free. I'll be sure to include the link. Can you tell us then, how did your caregiving journey evolve? So you go from being woken up at 2 a.m. with the news, so you're coming home, we're going to get this all sorted out. And then what did it look like after that? Well, it's really interesting that when I look at your work, what resonates with me is exactly what happened after that crisis. The crisis is announced. There we are. And the first, per- the first place we turned to was the medical community. So we're in the presence of these amazing doctors at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And in my husband's own network, there were a lot of really talented medical professionals And so I just thought, well, every problem I have, I'm just going to ask the doctor, what should I do? And I started looking at not just medical solutions, but also what role does nutrition play? How much exercise can he get? People were suggesting he go for acupuncture. So sort of alternative therapies, meditation, 
and keep calling the the doctors who were, you know, very kindly taking my calls, the oncologist, and they were very noncommittal. And I realized as I started really going through my caregiver journey, that's not their job to, they're not there to prescribe my well-being kit for me. I thought when I walked into the Cancer Institute that they would just, they know my cancer and they would know my husband and they would just put an app in my hand that said, just answer these questions and these are the things you're going to do as a caregiver. And that was so naive and not at all true. And so what I wanted to do, what I, I remember this moment where I was reading an email from the oncology team and I was going, well, they're not really answering my question. And then I realized not their job. Like it's in my book, I think of it as geographies of care. So when it was oncology related, pain related, they were absolutely all over it. But when it was anything that fell outside that, like how to handle my family and could we travel, they'd be like, well, what does it seem like? (laughs) How, How would that be for you? And so I thought, why aren't they telling me what I should do? And so that was a moment. And that is really what that was the germ of why I thought I need to write this book. I like that. I, I find it so relatable what you're saying, especially you're like, why aren't they telling me what to do? Because I yeah. I feel that way. Just tell me what to do. You're the expert. <laughs> but it you must see it. You see it all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I ended up when my husband passed away and I went back another time to talk with his oncologist, who's a big guy. Like he's I was once reading Oprah magazine and flipping through this article on lung cancer. And he was quoted in this oncologist was quoted in Oprah magazine. And I told him I was going to write this book. And he wrote me a letter after I wrote it and said this, uh, you said you were going to do this. It's so much needed. You know, there's so many people who come to me with this, these kinds of questions and it's all right here. So that was really affirming. That's awesome. That's really, really wonderful. How long were you a caregiver? Sadly, we thought we'd have five years. That's what the bell curve said. And it was 18 months from the diagnosis to my husband's death. Sorry to hear that. What did you learn about being a caregiver? I think the two things, we touched on one, which is create a practice of well-being. It is easy to fall under the wheels of difficult situations. I mean, you're just exhausted and you wake up and go, this is still going on and it's demanding and my time and my life are not my own. So that pathways to well-being was the first thing. The second thing, which was a surprise to me, I read a, a piece of research that said caregiving takes place over time. And as I looked into that, it turns out everyone thinks that. So there are phases of caregiving. And that's why in my book, I have the caregiver roadmap, which spells the acronym CARE. So I started in crisis and we moved to a long period of as normal as possible. By no means were we back at the beginning, but we were at a place where I was working and taking care of my clients and our family and we had holidays and we went on vacation. It took more effort. It was as normal as possible. And then there's a phase of resolution. And in some some caregivers I talk to, they say, yeah, my mom's better. She's home. You know, she's out of hospice. Everything is great. And and I love that for caregivers. In my case, the resolution was I lost my husband. 
And there's a precipice. There's a moment where there are a lot of moments that had I been paying attention and not just holding on to as normal as possible, I would have seen that we had moved into that kind of downward spiral. It was very slow and finally dawning on me that we were in a different place. So that phase is each of these phases, crisis as normal as possible and resolution have particular things that need to be addressed. And in many cases, they're the same things, but they take on a different tone or a different content. So for example, relationships during crisis, you're just you know, putting out fires, but relationships during as normal as possible, you can entertain again, you can have your friends over. And then during resolution, you've got to figure out who needs to know what now and who needs to be here to, to have conversations and visit. And so there, it's the same uh, thing on my checklist, but it changes content as you move through the phases. And then the, the fourth phase on my roadmap is evolution, because after that resolution, it is not a small thing to no longer be that caregiver. I mean, it is a 24-7, you're immersed in it for however long it goes on. And then suddenly that you're out of that job. And in my case, also grieving the loss of my husband, my family, my life, like everything was just thrown up into the air. So that isn't the second thing. So the first is well-being. The second is caregiving goes takes place as a journey over time. And then coming out of it, how do you integrate the lessons of caregiving? And I would say the biggest lesson of caregiving is life is short and it is shorter than we think it is. Even if we live till we're 90 or hundred, I tell my daughter, I plan to live to 105, but, and my, my grandson who's two statistically might live to 105, but it is, how you spend that time and really appreciate every, you know, every sandwich, every breakfast, every sunset. I think you started to touch on it, but I'm curious to know of the lessons that you've learned or the things that you gained along your caregiver journey. Are there any that still apply today that you have found that you use in your non-caregiver life now? Yeah. Yes. So the idea that caregiving. So now, even though I'm not in crisis as a caregiver, when I experience something that feels like a crisis or my clients do, I realize that what I learned was it, it isn't, it doesn't stay a crisis. It flattens out. It stabilizes because you bring your human problem solving together. So what I say is crisis pretty much always yields to some form of as normal as possible. So those first two phases of my roadmap really apply in every situation, not just caregiving. I was working with the CEO of a company and his company was acquired and he was just, it wasn't going the way he had made this three-year commitment, but he, he didn't like working there when he wasn't running his company anymore. And he was in crisis. And all of a sudden I was like, huh, this is going to be, this is going to even out. It's not easy. You're going to have to do some work to figure out what you need from the new company, but you can. And that's exactly what happened. It just felt, it feels like you're in an earthquake and everything is shaking. And then the earthquake stops. You look, you pick through the rubble. What do I have to work with? And that's 
becomes as normal as possible. So that's one thing I use all the time. I remind myself when something feels like it's intractable problem, mm, probably not. What would you tell or what do you tell to new caregivers that you meet? Or maybe that you'd even tell yourself now, Karen of today <laughs> gets the news that she's going to be a caregiver. What did you know now that you wish you knew then? Or like, what, what tips do you tell people? I think uh, that's such a great question because what one of the lessons that I integrated, like we're, as we're talking about these, is I would tell caregivers, you're going to have bad days when you behave badly and you fight with the person in your care or the person in your care fights with you, which is very common. And you're going to have to grant yourself grace that you're not going to be perfect caregiver, knowing exactly what to say and how to behave hundred uh, percent of the time. And when I was writing my book, I was really aware that it's like a shiny penny of, we have this great relationship. And I, because I've decanted a whole 18 months into this book to, in order to help caregivers. And, and I was in a writing group and one of my colleagues said, you know, it sounds like you're crazy perfect. And I'm like, well, we were not perfect. And she said, you ought to include some of those stories where you're not proud of those moments because, and I've gotten a lot of feedback. There is a story in here. I was like, oh, I'm going to make this short. So, but because it makes someone look bad and that person is me, but <laughs> it's that um, just not understanding, you know, being in a relationship with my husband as if we weren't in this crucible, as if, you know, it's just so like we would fight about dinner. Like, oh, you never want to have what I want to have for dinner. Or you don't want to go to the store to get whatever. And, or I'd say, I don't want take takeout again. As if that matters. Because when you look in the scheme, the cosmic significance of what you eat for dinner or who cooks is so small. But the point of it is, you're going to do it because everyone does. So when that happens, especially looking back on it, let go of the regret and grant yourself grace. And there's a really wonderful quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson that I'm going to paraphrase because I can't always memorize. It's actually stenciled on the wall of my hallway in my entry downstairs. But it says, um, basically, live each day and let it go. You did your best. No doubt some blunders crept in. Deal with them as soon as you can. But basically, today is a new day. Begin it with all you've got. I love that. What did you do when you were overwhelmed? This is a really, this is also advice for caregivers, but a really important thing. Not that I'm so smart, but I was really blessed by really being able to ask for help from my friends. And in my book, I call it's one of the things of building your pathway to resilience is really understand, identifying those people who absolutely would show up for you. If you were broken down on the highway at midnight, you could make that phone call and you know they'd come. Not everyone is worthy of being on your care leading team, your care leading squad, I call it. But what I, when, what I learned to do over time was look at all the things that were on my plate that were overwhelming some of those things, I had no choice but to do them. 
And some of them I was doing because I was afraid to ask someone else to help me. Or I would think, oh, I'll ask them to help, but they're not going to be helpful. And sometimes they weren't. But I started looking at things like cooking meals and keeping meals going. That's something other people can easily help with and want to help with. Dealing with taxes, finances, insurance, companies, bills that are coming in. I hate that stuff. My husband always did it. He wasn't capable of doing it. But I have this really good friend and he became my numbers guy. And he loved it because he's good at it. He just would like look at everything. He'd make those phone calls for me. He just took that off my plate. So I had, I do recommend having someone you can talk to more professional. Like a lot of people don't want to go to therapists or don't believe in it, but you have to have somebody who isn't in it with you, not a family member, not a friend, but just someone who can be objective where you can be your messy self and have them go, just listen, it's okay. I, you know, and, and not tell you what to do, but just let you release the valve of all that emotion that you, it has nowhere to go. So putting that care leading squad together so that when you're overwhelmed, there's someone who is a, a phone call away. And I recommend lining them up and don't let anyone on that team who you don't want to see your laundry room with all the laundry piled up because you, they will see your dirty laundry. That's a great suggestion. And I love that your care leading team. Yeah. I think that implies a little bit that you're an one should be organized, almost like you should consider the possibility that you might be a caregiver before that actually happens. So that's something that you recommend. Yes, it's not glamorous, but yes, I think the one thing that no one wants to do and should be done is get your paperwork in order, get your finances in order, get your will. And if you're going to have a trust, your trust, like we were in such a state because we just, even after the diagnosis, we just thought we're going to beat this. And we did. And I do recommend this. And it, it is get organized, get a binder. Literally, I, I tell people get a binder or a shoebox or a briefcase or whatever it is and put everything related to caregiving in that. And over time, that becomes a Bible where I could leave it. At, out, out by the front door. And when family members came over and I was going to run out, they'd have everything they needed right there. Organize yourself about work. What are you going to do about that? How are you going to take time off? How, what conversations do you need to have? But one of the things that is, I, I think 59% of Americans do not address is we are going to die. And if we do, what do you want to do with all the stuff? that you have? Do you, how do you want to disperse it? What attitudes do you want to have? Who do you want to be fielding those questions if you're not around or not able to? And that stuff no one wants to do, but it's really critically important to do it. And it's good, to your point, it's good to do it before that you have to before you're in a crisis. I, I definitely agree and resonate with the fact that no one wants to do it for some reason. But there's that expression called there's only two sure things in life. I think death and taxes. And I, I know, especially at my age, like when I was talking to my husband once and I was like, oh, you know, we should get a will. And he's like, 
why would we get a will? We're young. We're not going to die. I'm like, that's not true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I do. I am really a stickler on that. And we did, we had a will, but we hadn't looked at it for, you know, a couple, a decade. And it really needed to be updated, which we we did. There were little things. I run a caregiving support group. And with this just came up the other day. One woman in the support group lost her husband. And she said, and this is a group where people can just ask for help. Like, I have this problem. Can Does anyone know anything about it? She said, does anyone know anything about returning a car that's leased? My husband died. His car was still under lease. And... I don't know what to do with it. Do I sell it? Do I give it back? So we were all, you know, chiming in and helping her. It's, oh, it's easy. Here's how you do it. But those kinds of things where that could have been an easy note to her, like here, when, when you have to deal with returning the car, this is what you have to do. And just a little foresight. I'm not being critical of, of them, yeah. but in my case, my husband was no longer capable of paying the bills and he always paid all our household bills out of bill pay. And I didn't know he wasn't paying them. And until the bank called me and said, well, we kind of haven't seen your mortgage payment in a while. And I was like, what? <laughs> and so that was fine. I can pay that. But his car lease payment, I couldn't make it because my name wasn't on the lease and they wouldn't, the dealer just simply wouldn't take it. So that was, it, it just an oversight. Your name should be on, if you're caring for someone who your fortunes are tangled, your name should be on everything, just in case that healthcare proxy, the power of attorney, all those things are important to have. I'm curious about things people say. And if you found some things that folks told you that were helpful versus not helpful. Nikita, you're asking such great questions. So yes, there are, there's a ton of advice you're going to get that's not helpful. And it's, it comes from a good place. So there's the category that is, if you eat a lot of asparagus, you know, if Joel will just eat a lot of asparagus, his cancer will like be treatable. There are people that just believe you know, all you need is diet and exercise, forget chemotherapy, forget, you know, so there's that category. And that's just, you just sort of sort through that and thank people, check it out. Sometimes it's good advice, but, and then there's the kind that is things that people say over and over to you again, that you just don't want to hear. So one thing, and I talk about this in my book, people kept saying to me in the beginning, in the crisis was, this is your new normal. And I just don't like that expression because then I wanted my old normal. I'm not interested in this new normal, even though that's true. It is a new normal. It was just hard to hear and hard to take in as a caregiver. But pretty much people people showed up with advice or help or they did things for me that I never would ask or even think to ask someone to do. And one of my clients, I, we, it was the snowiest winter since 1872 in Boston when we had this diagnosis. And so I, we had seven blizzards, one right after the other. And I was out shoveling snow constantly. And the snow was just like getting higher and higher. It was traumatic. Even ask anyone not a caregiver of that winter in Boston, and they're still in PTSD about it. 
I was out shoveling one day and I had tears in my eyes, like people are leaving chicken soup on my porch, but I need help shoveling. Yeah. And I walked in the house and my phone rang and it was a client of mine who was in Philadelphia where it wasn't snowing. And he said, I want to give you snow removal for the rest of the winter. Like it was a miracle. It was God saying, okay, all right, we'll give you this. But just who does that? And it was, and there were many things like that that I'm just so grateful to people. But I can't think of anything else that people would say that you couldn't really thank you, but no, that's not helpful. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Myths and misconceptions. Do you think that there are any myths and misconceptions when it comes to caregiving that you'd like to dispel? Yes. It goes back to that caregiver paradox that I think it's a misconception that caregiving is relentlessly a miserable, horrible job. It can be on some days, but it doesn't have to be. And it is, it is, it's worthy of reframing so that you can find the days, the little things in every day that were good about that day. But if you don't look for them, when you look back over, say, a week, you're going to go, that was a really hard week. It snowed. We had traffic. We had to get in and out of Boston. It was bad. So I recommend recommend people keeping a gratitude journal, which is also part of the pathways of well-being. And it's one of the first things when someone tells me they're a caregiver that I ask them to do because they will, they, we do have a conception that caregiving is just a life sentence. It's just going to be awful. And yet it's not, it's, it's not all one thing. So it, the idea behind a gratitude journal, and there's a lot of evidence and there's research on this is just every day at the end of the day, think of someone you're grateful for or something that happened that day that you're grateful for. And you can always find something, even on the worst days. So two or three things every day. And that helps you build a pattern of reframing as you go through your days. So I would just get to a place and go, this one is going in my gratitude journal. So you can start seeing it as you're living it rather than looking back over it. Yes. You know, thinking back to when I asked you, helpful things or unhelpful things. I was just thinking to myself that one unhelpful thing, I feel like I heard at least when I was, when my husband was sick is, oh, everything's going to be okay. And for some reason, Mm -hmm. I took that as dismissive and Mm -hmm. I know they meant well, but I didn't appreciate it. Yeah. I think that's a version of the, this is your new normal in a way, but yeah, people do say that and they don't really know. It sounds like in your case, it is okay. The other piece of it is that someone who has stage four cancer is going to die. That's another misconception. We really don't know. And Atul Gawande has a book called Being Mortal. And in it, he talks about our lives like a ball of yarn. And your life is is like in the very center of that ball of yarn, like the, the essence of what keeps you alive. And as we live, we're just pulling the skein you know, we're just expending all the wool. And someday inside there, you're going to get to the middle, you're going to get to the end of your yarn, and then that's it. But you don't know how long, 
that's going to take and what's in there. So you can look at it as uh, we were dealing with stage four cancer from the very beginning and that's terminal. But I looked at things like, look at how healthy my husband was when he got cancer. So if you look at statistics, you might say, I'm doing this because it's a bell curve. But if you look at statistics, you might say, well, some people die right away. Some people die like about 30% die in the middle, in the, the 18 month mark. And now out here in the, the thin line to the right, there's people still alive. Like 5% of people with this kind of cancer at this stage are still living healthy lives. And I've been in the room with people who have said, yeah, it's stage four cancer, but my wife and I just took a motorcycle trip across the country and I wanted to be them. Right. And so, and that's what we, it was kind of a battle cry that my husband and I had, like, we're going to have a positive narrative about this and not be silly and not throw away opportunity for care, but to really say, we're going to live as if this is livable over time. Did you have any experiences during the care journey where you thought someone's not hearing me? How do I get them to hear me in terms of what I'm trying to express in terms of a concern I may have or something I want to try? How did you navigate those issues if you had them? I believe that, it, again, in my pathways to well-being, one of, one of the things that I ask people to do is assume the position. So proactively engage as the person who is going to be the primary decision maker. And when you do that, you it's a little bit different from being acted upon instead of acting. And so many caregivers I talk to are in the situation where their husband was the big person who went out into the world and they were the homemaker. And so now the roles are reversed. This person, had the, the caregiver, who has always been sort of timid or not the decision maker in the world now has to be the decision maker in the world. Or one woman that I talked to as a caregiver, she started caring for her father. She has siblings, but she was the one who had to step up because she lived closest. And her father was this take no prisoners lawyer. He did not want to be sick. He was angry that he was sick. He didn't believe he was sick. And she had to it's very difficult to he's the authority and now she has to become the authority. So I use the analogy of quarterback, American football quarterback. And what I encourage people to do is if you're the quarterback on the field, it doesn't matter what the playbook says or what the coaches on the sideline are saying, what's going on? Because you're the one everyone's looking to on the field to call those decisions. And sometimes our siblings, our extended family, the other people that are involved in the caregiving situation don't give you that. So then they don't hear you or they second guess. Why are you putting mom in assisted living? She's, she's fine. Well, you know, I found the chicken in the dishwasher. So I think it's time for her not to live on her own. True story in my family. And so I do think once you inhabit that role, you fully own that proactive, I'm going to know, I'm going to be asked, so I'm going to own the decision. Very hard to do, especially when it's not the relationship you're starting out in, but I highly recommend it. And then ask people, ask the person in your care, 
what do you require? What are your vital interests? If anything else happens, what do you need for me to know as your caregiver? And some of those conversations are really hard. Like if you're incapacitated, what do you want me to, what's, how do you want me to look at your life and whether I save you or, you know, those things. Atul Gawande does a really good job of talking about that. And I repeat that in my book as well. Very nice. Now, I know that you, well, you mentioned to all of us that you are recently married. And how did you make that transition from, you know, I guess this tragedy to feeling like, okay, I'm ready to do this again? Yeah. Well, um, part of being ready to do it again is the person (laughs) that I married because he's an amazing, sweet, kind, nurturing soul. But, but I was, I, the, after my husband died and I mentioned it's sort of, you're a caregiver, you're evolving into some new life. I had no idea what that would look like. I sold our home in Boston where I'd lived for 30 years and moved to South Carolina to be closer to my family, my sister. And I, that felt like a good decision at the time. I could only, I I could only do what I could afford. And at the same time, I was, it, it was, uh, it was hard to get up in the morning. I did. I figured out work. I figured out what I was going to do, but the grief was just like living with your head in a gray cloud for a year. And then at the end of the, a little over a year after my husband passed away, my daughter who had been pregnant called me and said, I think I'm in labor early. And she lives in San Diego. So I got on a flight and flew into San Diego and walked into the birthing room where my grand, our first grandbaby ever was born. And they put this little munchkin, this little creature all wrapped, swaddled into my arms. And I could feel for the first time since all of this happened, just this profound joy. It just, it was like my heart was singing. And I, I talk about it in my book because I can't believe I don't do joy. Like <laughs> I'm always like very cautious and vigilant, but that was a moment. And looking back on it, that was a turning point after that wonderful things just started coming my way and not because I'm so smart or I made good choices, but because I feel like I was able to see good around me again and the sky could be blue again and it wasn't rainy every day and metaphorically. So Mm -hmm. I was in that place and we got a hurricane and I had to evacuate from my house because we live in that territory. And I thought, well, I like history. I'll go to Gettysburg. And my now husband at the same time was in a conference that ended. He was in Philadelphia and it ended on a Friday and it started up again on a Monday and he had to go somewhere. And for some reason, he decided he'd go to Gettysburg. So the two of us ran into each other over. I was having dinner and he sat down next to me and we started talking and the trend, it wasn't hard. Like he, we, we had a conversation in which I really left that conversation thinking this guy is like my best friend. And I don't really, I've known him four hours. And so we kept in touch. We both went our separate ways and we kept in touch and it didn't take long to realize, as I said to him at the time, and I would say this to anybody about any opportunity that comes your way. 
when the spaceship lands in your backyard and they say, get on, you get on. And we had that choice not to. We both did. But we just said, you know, let's see what happens. Let's see where this goes. And so we had a very sweet COVID safe wedding because we had to cancel our family gathering in the backyard and Zoomed over mm-hmm. just to 65 people over Zoom. That's lovely. Congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. You've mentioned creating a practice of well-being. Do you have any recommendations on how to do that? Well, get my book because I talk about it, but no, there I do have uh, one pagers that talk about my roadmap and my pathways to well-being, which are the six things that I recommend. But some of the stuff that we've talked about, like map your journey, really give yourself the grace of knowing what's ahead. You can't know it, it's all unplannable, but at least get an idea of what you're dealing with for yourself. Assume the position. So that quarterback, I'm going to be asked all these things. It's all going to fall on me. I'm going to own it. But that means I get, it's not a democracy. I'm going to do what's best for the person in my care. And often you'll know better what's best for the person in your care. Keep a gratitude journal. So just end the day, just looking at what was good about this day, who was good about this day. Create your care team. What are the things you don't want to do, aren't good at? And who in your world do you trust implicitly? Call them up, line them up ahead of time and say, someday I may call you to call the insurance company for me or bail me out of a situation or I had one friend, I call her the cheerleader. She's my best friend. She would just open my door of my house, hand me a cup of Starbucks and go up and clean out my closets. Like she was just whatever and always with a smile, always so loved. So have your team ready. And the other piece of that is there are people who look helpful, sound helpful, but actually are not really helpful. And we know who they are. They don't get a place on your team. You do other things with them, but they don't get a spot. And then there's there's a concept in positive psychology called broaden and build. And that is when you wake up in the morning and you're a caregiver, you can have this tape running through your head. Like I would wake up and there's a Paul Simon song where the lyric is, but I'm all right, I'm all right. I'm just weary to the bone. And one day I said to my husband, you know, I wake up with the song in my head, I'm just weary to the bone. And he said, yeah, but it's, but I'm all right, I'm all right. So we were like, okay, we'll focus on, but I'm all right, I'm all right, not the weary to the bone part. And that's the broaden and build. So weary to the bone is narrowing and protecting yourself and getting that fight or flight, like what if something terrible happens, I'm going to plan for it. You have to do that. But you're all right. And if you're all right, you can broaden, you can find more options, you can create more options. So those are the six things that are talked about in the book, but but are that's how you build resilience. Awesome. As we wrap up, do you have any closing thoughts? I think that the main one is the one that we started with for your listeners, which is health is everything. And life is short. So don't cut corners on your own health and well-being. And there's a whole thing now we talk about telehealth because of COVID. Telehealth is here to stay. It's not going to go anywhere. And 
sometimes there's resistance to that. Like, especially if you're caring for an aging parent, want to visit the doctor over Zoom. But the plus side of that is we have this infrastructure in place and a caregiver can actually get their own, have their own doctor appointments, which might they might not have gotten to in other times. So look for the silver linings and really appreciate we're alive and we're being asked to do this. I would also say when I was, when my husband passed away and he, he was Jewish. So we had a rabbi who was going to preside at his service. And my daughter and I went and sat in front of the rabbi and he was asking us questions, an amazing guy. And he said to me, is there anything here you're proud of? And I immediately said, I was not selfish through the whole thing. And I can be a really selfish person. Like, wait, I don't want to do that. I have, I work, I have to do it, whatever, but I was not. And I feel like when you show up for someone on this journey, which is really a hero's journey, allow yourself to see how hard that journey is and how you're, you're doing it. And you're probably doing it with grace and you're probably doing it with meaning and accomplishment and allow that for yourself. It's really beautiful. Thank you so much, Karen, for sharing all your insightful thoughts with us at the Good Health Cafe today. Oh, thank you for asking. These are really great questions. And I really appreciate being able to share with your audience. So wonderful. Thank you. And I will be sure to put the link to your book and everything else in the notes because I'm really excited to read it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Karen today. If you heard something useful on today's episode, please share it with a friend. All the links to her information are in the bio. So please check out her book, The Sudden Caregiver. I think it sounds like a good read. See you in the cafe later. Until next time, bye.